Hi, this is Reverend Tommy, and I'd like to welcome you back to the garden where we explore the big questions about life. I invite you to open your minds and be receptive to seeing things differently. So let's get metaphysical. This week, I'd like to continue the lesson which started as Unity and Me. Now that it has become a series, I see that the title is not totally comprehensive. Yes, it is about my experience with unity, but the larger picture has to do with helping those not familiar with unity teachings make sense of or differentiate the unity view of Christianity from the traditional one. So in that sense, it's about unity and you as well. As before, I've once again included a list on the back of the program of some of these differences. For the sake of review, and for those people who only hear me online, my daughter has put me on a podcast, and so I know there's some people that listen to me online. I know one of her friends, Val, I think she's in California or something, listened to it. So they don't have access to this program, obviously. So I want to quickly go over these uh, topics, these differences, and just touch upon them real quickly. The first is that God is not a person or a being, supreme or otherwise. Instead, God is principle and absolute good. For God to be anything other than absolute good would make God dualistic, and that makes no sense whatsoever. It is creating God in our image instead of the other way around. The second is that we teach transformation, not salvation. We teach that we already are that which we are seeking to become. It's not a matter of becoming something. It's a matter of realizing that which you are. The psalmists remind us, they say, it says, you are all gods and sons of the Most High. Meister Eckhart said, God is not a matter of addition. God is a matter of subtraction. By that he meant remove your garbage so that God can shine through. Third, because we are created in the image and likeness of God and not the other way around, we don't have or believe in original sin. We believe in original virtue. Fourth, Because we are like God, we too have creative power. You add that to free will, and it is we who create our own destiny through the choices that we make every moment. Personal responsibility, thus, is a big part of the Unity New Thought movement, exactly for that reason. Fifth, we are not separate from God, not because of sin or anything else. Being separate from God makes no sense. How can you be separate from that which you are, from that which is everywhere? Is a fish separate from water? In a sense, perhaps you could see it that way. But is it really? No, it's not. We do teach, however, that because of our free will and creative ability, it is possible to believe that we are separate from God. And because we believe it, because of what we believe becomes our reality, then we have the experience of separation. But that doesn't mean we're separate. We're having the experience. And if you remember when I did my biology of beliefs, 
I told you that what you believe, it doesn't even matter what you believe is true or not true. It is your perception of it which makes it true for you, and thus you have that experience. Six, we have a panentheistic view of God. What does that mean? It means God is both imminent and transcendent. God is both inside of us and outside of us. Back to the fish in the water thing, literally immersed in it. Another biggie is that unity believes in the divinity of all mankind, not just some, not just Jesus. Jesus, as we say, was a great way shower, the great example. For Jesus to have been different from anybody else brings back into the equation that paradigm of separation which doesn't make any sense. To say nothing of putting God in some sort of boundaries. It would be saying that God is in Jesus, but God is not in me or not in you. In other words, God is there, but not here. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Not if God is everywhere. So you have some of the differences between the unity view or interpretation of Christianity and the traditional one. Once you start to really understand these differences, I think you begin to see the larger picture of life a bit more clearly and with a bit more sense to it or reason to it. Imagine that, making sense of religion. Yet from the very beginning, new thought has always sought to do that, especially when it comes to reconciling science and religion and Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. As you may know, there is an ever-increasing number of atheists, and especially in the younger people crowd, who define themselves as atheists. The reason for this seems very clear to me. It is because traditional interpretation of the relationship of God and man no longer makes sense to these people. Why is that so? Because the consciousness that exists today does not resonate with the consciousness that created that view of a whimsical, judgmental God that favors one group or over another. Or the idea that the kingdom of heaven will be set up here on this planet, this physical planet, a speck of dust in the universe. Why here? Because we're here? Are we that naive? Are we that vain to believe such a thing? Or does the kingdom of heaven have something entirely different in its meaning? It has nothing to do with a location, which is what we teach in unity. It is a state of consciousness, as you know, or have you probably heard before. For people who hear the old view and find it nonsensical, the only option is to go to the complete opposite direction and say that there is no such thing as a god, that God is a fabrication of superstitious man. Given that old view of God, that conclusion is certainly understandable. Who wants a God like that anyway? I don't even want friends like that. I once heard a unity minister say, next time somebody tells you they're an atheist, throw them for a loop and tell them, the God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. I like to think that there's some middle ground here. It is not necessary to go from the extreme of a vengeful God to the extreme of a non-existent one. After all, what is God anyway? The race consciousness definition and understanding of God 
is the root problem of this situation here. But that's another lesson, and you can check that one on my podcast. For now, suffice it to say that God is that creative, intelligent energy that permeates everything and, it, and that it expresses itself in infinite form and variation. In that lesson about God, I made this comment, which bears repeating. If God is everywhere, omnipresent, and all-powerful, omnipotent, and all-knowing, omniscient, then perhaps the question should not be, what is God? It should be, what is not God? I can understand how someone has difficulty believing in a judgmental, prejudiced, really big man-in-the-sky God. But there is some creative energy in this universe at work, and that is hard to ignore that. And it is big. It is very big. Not believing such a thing, for me, just tells me, well, you're just not paying attention. That's all there is to that. When you actually sit and contemplate the wonder of a seed becoming whatever it is it's going to become, how can you not believe in some great power at work in this universe and call it what you will? Einstein said, you have two choices, to see nothing as a miracle or to see everything as a miracle. How do you think it is? For me, life is a miracle period from top to bottom, from side to side, from alpha to omega, from whatever to whatever. That is what I'm trying to get you to understand. I'm trying to get both you and me to see this bigger picture that's going on here around us. Unity has helped me in many ways, and that is why I'm doing this series of talks. I am hopeful that it will help you to clarify some of the things in your mind, in your philosophy. There are several ways in which unity helped me, getting, helped me in getting a more clear picture of the overall scheme of things. And the big one, which I mentioned before, was reconciling my Christian upbringing with my insistence on universality. You've heard my mantra. I'll say it again. It's got to be about everyone. The starting point in making this distinction between unity Christianity and traditional Christianity, as I pointed out in the first lesson, is the fact that there is a major difference between the life of Jesus and the story created about Jesus. Recall that in the infancy stage of Christianity, there were many factions, many points of view regarding the the life of Jesus and his purpose. The first followers had to try to make sense of what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. Now, what is that? That is basically two things that go against each other that don't make any sense. For example, someone who says they love you, but they abuse you. Your brain can't quite figure that out. That's called cognitive dissonance. In the case of Jesus, he was supposed to be the Messiah, the the king, the long-awaited king of the Jews, who was going to set up the new kingdom here on earth for the Jewish people. Yet he died as a common criminal. They couldn't make sense of this. A suffering Messiah made no sense to the Jews. There is no talk about a suffering Messiah in the Old Testament. It still doesn't make sense to the Jews. That's why Jewish people don't accept that story. It doesn't make sense to them. 
However, in the mind of Paul, he had an answer to this. Paul, as I said last time, had an apocalyptic view of the universe. Now, what is an apocalyptic view of the universe? It's the story you've all heard, that this is a battleground between evil and good. And right now, the evil forces are in charge of this place. That's why it's a mess. But it's going to change real soon because the Messiah is going to come and overpower the evil and beat them and do that, set up the kingdom. That is an apocalyptic view of the universe. This is what Paul had. So Paul took his understanding, his model of the universe, stuck Jesus in, worked backwards, and created this whole account of how, what we see as traditional Christianity now. I've been studying a lot. <laughs> anyway, it's good, to, it's good stuff to know. So you have two choices then. You have follow Jesus or follow Paul. And as it turned out, traditional Christianity decided to follow Paul. Unity focuses more on the life of Jesus and not on Paul. Indeed, unity helped me understand this reconciliation. The tradition that existed at the time of Jesus had many people, women, Gentiles, Sumerians, all excluded from the in crowd, if you will. But Jesus excluded none of them. He actually made it a point of being with them, of associating with them. The tradition of today also excludes many people. Not long ago, women from the clergy, and in some cases, still the case. Blacks, the LGBT community, Muslims, Buddhists, the list goes on. Now, I wonder if Jesus would have excluded these people if he were around today. Well, if, if scripture is accurate, the answer would be no, he would not. The best thing I liked about the unity interpretation, though, of Jesus' message is that it has a flavor of a cosmic perspective. A cosmic perspective. Now, that is a big statement, and it needs clarification. What do I mean by such a remark? Remember last time I said that if the Bible is literal, then it's a story about some people. But if it's allegory, then it's a story about all people. Same type of thinking here, let me explain. When you interpret the Bible as allegory, you move from specifics to generalities, from events to ideas. And ideas are transcendent. They are eternal. These stories of the Bible these events now become representations of eternal ideas, and those can be applied cosmically. So the interpretation could be about this world. It could be about some people, but it just as easily could be about another world or some other people, some other place in the universe or some other universe. Because we're dealing now in concepts not in specifics. This is why sometimes we say it doesn't matter if an event actually literally took place, as I've said over and over. It doesn't matter if there was a race between a hare and a tortoise. That's not the point. Same applies here. So in unity, we have a metaphysical interpretation, or an allegorical, if you will, of the Bible, and we also have Jesus as the great example. 
That brings me to the topic of the only begotten son. Have you ever wondered or did you ever wonder why or how God only had one son? I used to think about that all the time. What do you mean he only had some, one son? What about the rest of us? What, do we chop liver here or what's going on? I always wondered about that and never understood it until I came to unity. It is not exactly unique to us, though, because Meister Eckhart said, and I'm paraphrasing because I couldn't quite find the quote, but I remember it from before. He says, God never begot one son, but the only begotten is forever begetting the only begotten. Now, what does that mean? I take it to mean that God is forever creating. In other words, if you interject one word continually, I think it kind of clears it up a little bit. You say, God is continually begetting the only begotten. It is one continuous creation forever. Tradition, as you know, interprets Jesus as the only begotten son. Literally. Because it says in John, so he loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that he, who, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Again, a retake of those words might be something like, life is eternally being created, and as a son of God, you are part of it. Believe it. Believe in this eternal creation and that you are in it now and you will always be in it. Of course you have eternity. That's what the ladies from the New Thought said. Eternity is now. You're in the middle of it. It's not going to start. It's eternal. Look up the dictionary. <laughs> Unity's unique spin on the only begotten son is very, very interesting. And it makes a lot of sense, especially if you like platonic philosophy, which I do as a philosophy major. It is extremely understandable because it is representative of our threefold nature. And applying the concepts of fractals that I've said about before, as above, so below, you can gather that likewise God has a threefold nature, if you will, but on a larger scale. For unity, the Trinity is mind idea, expression. You've heard it before. It coincides with our nature, which is spirit, soul, body. Tradition calls it Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Same thing. It also coincides with, from a psychological point of view, superconscious, subconscious, and conscious mind. So we, we all have mind, and we all have ideas, and these ideas seek to express themselves. Charles Fillmore, the Unity co-founder, said that God only creates in spirit. So mind God then creates in its image and in its likeness. And that is idea. Because mind and idea are both abstractions. Then the idea seeks to express itself in the world of form. Plato likewise said and talked about eternal ideas as the true reality, that for every form, there is an eternal and perfect idea of that form. For example, that there is the idea of a circle. It is perfect and exists in a world of eternal forms, never changes. However, we create circles all the time of all sorts, and they're imperfect. They're imperfect. 
But they all have one thing in common, and that is the idea of a circle. They are all a circle or a manifestation of a circle. This is how it is with the only begotten Son. There is only one perfect idea of mankind in the mind of God. So then that, in that sense, there really is only one Son. However, like that circle, it expresses itself in infinite form as me, as you, as Jesus, and so forth. We call this one perfect idea in the mind of God Christ. It is an arbitrary name that came along from the Christian tradition. We have called it something else, but the point is, it is this one perfect idea that exists in each of us as a pattern of perfection, which we have inherited from God. Call it our God DNA, if you will. So yes, God does have only one son, but it's not a person. It is an idea in each person. And when you believe in this idea, you shall not perish, but have eternal life, as it says in John. This is not to say that you don't have eternal life now. Eternal is eternal, as I said. But that you will live in that eternal consciousness. You will change the channel to that consciousness. For me, that means that you will continue or can continue to express yourself in the manifest world because ideas are forever seeking to express, but you will no longer be in the conscious, in the consciousness of mortality or limitation. That is the transformation which we seek. Have a wonderful Sunday.